Today is uh, the 12th day of Christmas, the last day of our celebration. And so this afternoon, I'll be taking down our lights uh, <laughs> that have been going on uh, 24-7 for the last 12 days. And so it's time uh, to take those down. It's time to take down our tree, and we move into a new season the season of Epiphany. It is the season of light. It, our days are starting to get longer. The light is starting to come into our world at this time of year, and we celebrate that God's light is coming and moving in our world. The church, for the church, Epiphany, which is tomorrow, January 6th, used to be one of the biggest holidays in the church life. There was Easter, Pentecost, and Epiphany. And long time ago, we used to celebrate the birth and the baptism and the naming of Jesus all in the Epiphany season. And then we added Christmas and gave a special day just for uh, Jesus' birth. And then, then Christmas kind of grew into a 12-day thing. And now Christmas is one of the largest holidays in our world, Christian or not Christian, which is wild to think. And because Christian, uh, Christmas has become this juggernaut of a holiday, Epiphany has kind of taken a step back, and so not very many people do much on Epiphany anymore, but I just want to remind, our, remind us that there are a few traditions, old traditions from Epiphany that maybe you want to take up again. I don't know if you uh, know some of these traditions. One is a king's cake. Anybody know king's cake, what a king's cake is? You know, it's a celebration. It's a celebratory cake. You have a party on Epiphany. You have this kind of dense fruit cake, and then I don't know how this I don't know how this actually honors the baby Jesus, but you, you bake into a cake a little plastic baby Jesus, right? It's a little weird, but that's the tradition. And then you slice up the cake and you divide it out, and then um, whoever has the piece with the baby Jesus in it, you got to be careful not to bite him, um, you host the Epiphany party next year. So that's one tradition. Maybe you want to start up again. Uh, another tradition is in a lot of Russian Orthodox churches on Epiphany, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. And so after the church on Epiphany, you would go out to your nearest water and you would bless the water. So you go to a lake or, or a river and you would all get into the water, remember your baptisms, and bless the water again in January. This is the origin of the polar bear swims that happen so much, right? Maybe you want to add that into uh, your celebration today. If you want to go swim in the ocean today, I'm not going to stop you. Um, another tradition which I really like, which I think I'm going to start, is called chalking your doors. Um, and so some Christian traditions on Epiphany, they chalk their door frames with a, a little inscription. They'll put the year and CMB on it. And it's a way of saying, Christ blessed this house. Um, uh, in Latin, I, I forget the exact words, but it's like Christus, I want to say, ma I'm going to murder Latin right now, uh, but it's mansion and benedictus. Uh, Christ blessed bless this house, C-M-B. And that chalk over your door frame would fade throughout the year. And you write, Christ, uh, Christ blessed this house in the year as a way of saying, God, will you... Uh, be present at all the meals that happen inside this house. God, will you bless all the friends and family that we host inside this house? Will you bless the conversation and bless everything that happens inside this house? God, you are welcome in our home. 
I really like that idea. And as that fades throughout the year at Epiphany, it's time to remember and renew those blessings and ask God, will you please bless this home again for a new year? I like that idea. Put 2020 CMB. I'll be doing that uh, today. And some people think CMB is from Latin for Christ bless this house. Other people think that it's the initials of the three wise men, Casper, Melchor, and Balthazar. And so CMB for the for the wise men that came and visited Jesus's house. Now, we don't know that those are their names. <laughs> we made up those traditions. We made up those stories, Casper, Melchor, and Balthazar. Uh, we don't know that those were their names. We don't even know how many wise men there were. The scriptures don't tell us a number. They say that there's more than one. They call them plural. The wise men came, and they brought three gifts. Because there were three gifts, we like to think that there were three wise men. Because in our, but really, there could have been five, there could have been two, there could have been ten. Um, but in our mind, you know, we like that three gifts, three givers. That makes a lot of sense. You ever try to um, give a gift with somebody else? You know, say to mom and dad, hey, this is from the both of us, when you know really only one person did the work. Um, so we don't like that idea. So we gave three wise men three gifts. It's also interesting that we call them wise men because in the scriptures, they're not called wise men at all. They're not wise men. They're not kings either. We sing a song, We Three Kings. The scriptures call them magi, which is a one-to-one translation from the original Greek. They are magicians. They are sorcerers. What's more, that they're foreign sorcerers. They are magicians from the east, from an unknown land. These are the first visitors to this new vulnerable king, this infant Jesus. As we read the story, we perk up and say, is Jesus in danger? What do these foreigners want with this new king? What do these magicians, these sorcerers, want with this new king? How are they involved in the story of Jesus? As we go into the story, we find out these sorcerers, magicians from the east, they have been looking for something. They've been looking for a new era. They've been looking for a new age that's going to be ushered in by a new king. They're looking for a time of peace, of hope, of love, where all things are made right. They've been seeking. They've been looking. They are seekers. But they don't have the knowledge of where this king is going to be. They don't have the knowledge of God. They don't have the knowledge of what this kingdom is exactly going to be like, but they are seeking after it. So they do their best, and they see, they look for God. They look for this new king. They look for this new age in whatever they have. What they have are the skies. What they have are the stars. And God is never, uh, never shy about sharing and speaking to people of all cultures all around the world. So these magi use the skies. God uses the skies to speak to them. They see a star, a star that they interpret as the coming of a new age, a new world, a star that they interpret as a coming of a new king. 
And so they follow the star. The star leads them to the land of Judah, Judea, Israel. And they go looking for the king. Naturally, uh, they don't know where to start, so they go to the palace. Now, in the palace, there is a king, but he's propped up by the Roman Empire. He is Herod. He is Jewish, but he had been handpicked to rule and reign over the Jewish people as a puppet for Rome. Herod likes his position. Herod and his scribes, they have knowledge of this Messiah. They have knowledge of a new king coming in because they have the Scriptures. So, you have the Magi from the east in contrast with the Jewish scribes in Herod's palace. The Magi in the east, they come seeking. They're looking for this era. They're looking for this new king, but they don't have the knowledge. The scribes in the palace, they have the knowledge. They have the scriptures. They know where this new king is supposed to be born. They know what the, what the prophecies say, but they do not have the desire for this new era. They do not have a desire for a new king. Why? Because they live in the palace. Things are pretty nice in the palace. For them, there's nothing wrong in this age. Yeah, their people are being oppressed, but they have the backing of Rome. But they have a comfortable life in the palace. A regime change would be bad for them. It might be good for other people, but it would be bad for them. They're not looking for a kingdom where things are different. They're not looking for a kingdom of peace, of hope, where God reigns in all things, where God lifts up the valleys and brings down the mountains, as the Scriptures say. They're not looking for a new way of life. The Magi come to Herod and his scribes. We saw the star. We know that it's time. Where is this new newly born king that we can worship, that we can give our loyalty to. Herod, now he's interested. He wasn't interested in a new king or a new era, but now that people from other countries are interpreting their signs that the king has come, Herod says, okay, let's find out. I too want to worship this king. I too uh, want to know where he is. Of course, you and I know that he has ulterior motives, that he wants to stomp out this king. He wants to stomp out this kingdom and this new era before it can ever get started. So he says to the Magi, talk to the scribes. The scribes say, in Bethlehem, Bethlehem is where the Messiah is supposed to be born. So if you, Magi, think your star is telling us that now is the time, well, let me tell you, our scriptures say that this is the place. Go there. Herod sends the Magi, but he says, when you find him, let me know. Let me know so that I too can go and worship him. Of course, Herod has not, is not thinking about, about worship. Herod is only thinking about killing. Herod is only thinking about massacre. He's only thinking about violence to destroy whatever thing could threaten his rule, whatever thing that would take him off the throne. Herod wants to destroy that. The Magi, they follow to Bethlehem. They follow the instructions to Bethlehem. 
the scriptures say that the star led them, that the star landed over on the place above Bethlehem. If you think that this is still some sort of astro- astrological star that has come out of, you know, orbit to rest over a stable, um, probably not. <laughs> that would be weird. Um, but God's light in some way, as the story tells us, guides them to this house where Jesus is. Now, when did they get there? Probably not the night of Jesus' birth, like some of the nativity stories share and show. But sometime after, maybe a year, maybe a two, they find the infant Jesus. They find this new king, the one who's going to usher in a new era. And how do they find him? Born to peasant parents, poor people, living in a borrowed home, not where they're from. And they know that this child is going to change the world. Their first response is worship. The first thing they do is worship. What is worship? Worship, uh, the word comes from worthy, ascribing worth to something. When we worship, we ascribe worth. We say, you are worthy. You, uh, you are higher than any other possession that I have. You are precious. I think when we talk about worship, we throw that word around so much. When is worship services? Are you going to worship? When you worship something, you say, this has the highest value in my life. This is the thing that can give me guidance. This is the thing that I should measure my life according to. When you worship something, you say, this is my highest loyalty. I have no other loyalties that are higher than you. You are my ultimate concern. These magi from the east coming into this house to this strange site, they say, this child is worth my devotion, worth all my loyalty, worth everything that I am. They worship him. When we come to worship, when we do this, we say again to God, you are my highest loyalty. You are the most precious thing to me. You are worth everything I am, all that I am. You take the throne of my heart. There is nobody beside you. Be the center of my life. When we worship, we ask God to be the center of our lives. I need to do that on a very regular basis. Because when I'm out in the world, when I'm working, when I'm doing other things, all these other loyalties, they start to creep up. Even loyalties to my family, loyalties to my work, the church, loyalties to my country, loyalties to my political party. All these other loyalties are grasping for my heart. But when I come to worship, when I come to the table, I reaffirm again, no, I have no other loyalties higher than you. You are my God. You are my center. I will guide my life based on you. I will live my life based on you. You are worthy of all my worship. The first thing they do is they worship. The next thing they do is they give gifts. 
Giving gifts, generosity goes hand in hand with worship. In the Old Testament, the ancient Israelites, it's all they did in their worship. Their worship wasn't coming around a speaker or a priest or a pastor to talk about ideas. Their worship wasn't to come and hear a band play songs and enjoy themselves. Their worship wasn't about all those things. Their worship was only to come and give their gifts to God, to say, you are worthy of my life. But worship is not just some sort of mental assent. It's not some sort of agreement to a set of ideas. It's not just a, I like you. Worship is an admission that this changes my life. This involves who I am. This involves my work. This involves my stores. This involves everything I have. There's real physical uh, stakes involved. And so God, because I love you, because you are worthy of everything I am, I bring my gifts to you. In the Old Testament, that's what worship is. If you were a cattle rancher, you would bring some of your cattle. If you were a farmer, you would bring some of your wheat, grain, corn, whatever. If you, were, if you made your living some other way, you would bring your money, and you would buy these other sacrifices, and you would bring them to worship all worship was, was bringing your gifts. The prayer, the songs, all that stuff was around the centerpiece of worship, which is giving our offering to God. It, we still practice this today. We give our offering to God, and, and I say this week in, week out, that our gifts is worship. We are giving to God. When I ask you to give to the church, I'm not asking you to give to programs or ministries. Sometimes I may couch it in that way, but your gifts is a part of your worship. You are giving to God and saying, God, because you are number one in my life, because I love you, this affects how I live. This affects how I spend. This affects how, what I do with the gifts that you give me, and I give a portion back to you. It is an act of worship. Now, what we end up doing with those gifts is a, is is a matter of organization. In the Old Testament, when they brought those gifts together, it wasn't, a, it wasn't just burn them to a crisp and totally destroy them. When they would bring gifts of grain and wheat, when they would bring gifts of meat, they would essentially, when they sacrificed them, they'd essentially cook them. They would cook the meat. They would cook uh, the grains, and then they would distribute them to the Levites, the priest class that didn't have any sort of um, other job. They didn't, they didn't farm. They didn't do anything like that. So the priest class could eat. They would also, also distribute gifts uh, for foreigners and for the poor among them to take care of other people. They would distribute the gifts and, and build the temple and make worship happen. We do the same. You bring your gifts to God when you give to God. Um, you're not giving to programs, you are giving to God. Then as the church, we organize ourselves uh, to decide how do we best use the gifts that you've given to God, that we've given to God, to spread the light of Christ into this world. And so we organize ourselves, and in this church, we, we elect a uh, church council, and we agree on a budget, and we do our best to say, this is how we believe God is calling us to use your gifts to God, our gifts to God, in ways that maximize uh, God's mission in this world. So when we worship, 
uh, we give. So the first thing that the Magi do is they worship. They ascribe worth. They give their loyalty to Jesus. The second thing they do is they give their gifts, a natural outpouring, a physical uh, acknowledgement of their loyalties to Jesus. And then they go home by another route. They go home by another route. In the scriptures, the Magi, they're thinking about going back to Herod, apparently. That was the instructions to go back to this murderous puppet leader. And they go back, and the Spirit stops them. Something in them changes. Because of their experience with this infant Jesus, they've changed the way they look at the world. I imagine when they experience Jesus in this way, their idea of the coming kingdom, of the new era of God, has to change. God is going to bring in his kingdom, the new creation, a world where all things are made right, through this child born to these people? Well, okay then. This is a totally different world and not one that I was expecting. Because their minds were changed, their actions were also changed, and they were inspired to go another route, a route away from Herod, a route away from the violence of the current era, a route that is different. You probably, you know, obviously heard in the news this week, uh, there, are, there are wars and rumors of wars. Um, when the disciples asked Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? When are you going to return? When are you going to make things right? Uh, Jesus said, look for the signs, you know. Uh, sailors, when they're out sailing and they see, you know, red clouds in the morning, that they know a storm is coming. So, uh, just like the kingdom, you'll look for the signs. And one of the signs is wars and rumors of wars. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I can't imagine a time in our history since the time of Jesus when there weren't wars and rumors of wars, right? I think Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is coming right now. The kingdom of God is happening. Keep your eyes open. Look for it. Be a part of it. This week, um, there's a lot of pain and turmoil about what does this mean for us? What does this mean uh, for our country? What's the retaliations going to look like? And when I read these scriptures, when I read that the Magi returned home by another route, I start to think to myself, I think God is calling us to return back to our world by a different route. We've come and worshiped Jesus at Christmas. We've come to see this Christ child, to imagine a world where God makes all things right. We call him the Prince of Peace. We hear the angels declare peace among all people. When we leave the manger, we can't go back to the old ways. We can't go back to the old route. God is calling us to another route. 
Yes, we live in a world where there is evil. We're going to be dealing with that over the next several weeks in the next sermon series. We deal in a world where there are military strikes. We live in a world where there is not peace. But I believe God is calling us to walk a different route, to work for peace, to make peace, to seek every avenue for peace. Our denomination, we have these uh, paragraphs that we call the social principles that have been carefully prayed over and have been voted on by our general conference. And for all the things that our general conference uh, misses from time to time, we're human people. We get a few things right. One of our social principles says that war is incompatible with Christian teaching. And we urge all nations and leaders to find any other avenues and means to settle disputes, to make peace other than violent measures. Now, we're not ignorant of a world where violent measures happen, but we continue to walk a different route, to call on our leaders to make peace, to avoid military force, to make things right in this world. God calls us to walk by a different route. I pray two things every single Sunday in the prayer, and I, I, I'm, I never give them up. I never will. Um, one is I pray for unity in the church. <laughs> Even in the news that our church is going to separate, I still pray for unity because I still believe that that is God's hope for us, that God's crazy plan is to bring together a people who will enact God's mission of bringing God's light into the world. And we bicker and we fight and we disagree. And even in this room, we disagree. Now, I don't pretend that we all agree on anything. We disagree. But there is something beautiful when people who disagree come together and say, for the sake of God's mission, for the sake of the same God that we worship together, we'll work together to make things right in this world. And so I always pray for the unity in the church, even as we come to the split. We've had splits before. We've had reunifications before. And I'll continue to pray for a world where God's people walk hand in hand with one another. The other thing that I always pray for is our enemies. Um, this, is not, this is not new to me, or this is not, you know, some sort of novel idea that I had that we should pray for our enemies. Jesus instructs us to pray for our enemies. Jesus instructs us to ask for blessing and not curses on our enemies. And even, even as we fight, even as we use military might, I still pray for our enemies. I pray that we lay down our arms. I pray that we walk by a different route. And I'll never stop. I'll never stop. I don't know where you are in the political um, stream. I don't know what party you ascribe to, and, and uh, I don't assume we all agree on this. But Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies and to ask for blessings upon them. I still ask that God blesses our enemies and all those that will lift up violence to do harm, because I still believe that God is a God of love who loves everyone. So, I have been changed by the love of Christ. I've been changed by 
my worship. And I will try to walk a different route. I will try to avoid Herod and his anger. I will try to walk by peace and bring light into this world. We don't know what happened to the Magi. They left. They went back home. And I don't think, you know, everything was made right in the world right after they met with Jesus. <laughs> it's not like all wars ceased in that moment. It's not like slavery ceased around the world in that moment. It's not like oppression ceased after the Magi left worshiping Jesus. But the Magi experienced a light in Jesus that changed them. And I have to believe that, that, that those Magi carried that light back to their homes and that light changed their homes and it changed their communities. That light that changed the Magi also changed the disciples when they met with Jesus. They carried that light and formed the church. And that light continues in us. And when we experience Jesus like the Magi experienced Jesus, God's light comes into us and we carry that light into this world until there are no more wars, until there is no more death, until there is no more pain. That is our work as we carry the light into the world. That's what the season of Epiphany is all about. As we enter into this time of year that reminds us that the light is steadily growing in our world, I want to remind you that even in the face of wars and rumors of wars, the light is steadily growing in our world, and God is coming, and God is making all things right.